I think relationships and friendships can form all sorts of types of backgrounds. And so spinning out different skins and different niche categories was the thing that we did for the next couple of years. From probably 96 to 2000, we came out with around 20 different niche sites from anything from like the whips and chains, BDSM crowd, to the gay crowd, different languages, uh, Chinese, German, French, each one of those had their own separate site. And we even had a site for Christians called Big Church, uh, where you could hook up with people based on their affinity for different Bible verses. I mean, it was just different ideas that you say, well, okay, there might be a community we can build for that. And since we had the engine that enabled you to crank them out, each one was a couple weeks work, a couple templates and away you go. And then you try to market it by cross-linking the different sites. When you start doing advertising, it doesn't take that much more effort to throw in different banners for different sites, and you just make a collection of that. Because the idea was, a site like Match.com was like one-size-fits-all type dating. This is back before they had the conglomerate of you know, all the different niche sites for themselves. But people would self-select based on what the description of the site was for. Gay men don't necessarily want to be hanging out with lesbians and straight people. If their site was only for gay men, you would get a higher conversion rate. So. By pulling out these different niches, we're able to get better ROI in our ads and basically uh, grow that way. I believe the colloquial phrase here is different strokes for different folks, <laughs> or at least that was the approach Andrew Conru took to his dating websites. He's the founder of the Friend Finder Network, a conglomerate of dating websites that perhaps most famously includes Adult Friend Finder. It was the internet's OG hookup website, and it's actually still one of the world's most popular hookup websites. But the story of Friend Finder is much more than a story about a single website. Are you ready to hear it? Okay then, let's get dialed in. Hi there, and welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that's gonna help you become a better entrepreneur, and it does it by giving you stories from some of the internet's most impactful and successful innovators. My name is Aaron Dinan, I'm your host. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. If you've been listening to Webmasters for a while, then you know that dating websites have popped up a few times here on the show. We've got the story of Match.com from Gary Kremen. That's Webmasters episode number 50. We've got the story of OkCupid okay with Sam Yagen. That's episode number 35. We've even got the story of a company called Operation Match, which was offering computer dating services back in the 1960s. That, by the way, is episode number 36 with Jeff Tarr. In those episodes, we dealt with dating as a fairly wholesome and mainstream thing, but you know, we're all adults here and we all understand that dating sometimes isn't just about building long lasting relationships. And this episode's guest, Andrew Conru, wasn't afraid to embrace that. In doing so, he built an incredibly successful company. We're gonna hear all about it, but first, and speaking of successful companies, we're gonna take a moment to hear about this podcast's sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps its customers buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, SaaS apps, content websites, and yes, even dating websites. If you own a profitable internet business and you're thinking of selling it, make sure you take a few minutes to reach out to the team at Latonas. They have tons 
tons of experience selling companies just like yours, and they're gonna be able to help you through the process and make it way easier than it would be if you tried to do it all on your own. Or maybe you're thinking about buying an internet business. Latonas can help you too. Start by making your way over to the Latonas website where you'll find tons of listings for all of the businesses they're currently helping sell. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. Dating websites today are about as mainstream as pretty much any type of business you'll find online. Heck, the Match Group, which runs Match.com, as well as Tinder, Hinge, Plenty of Fish, and nearly 50 other dating websites, is a publicly traded company with, as of this recording, a market cap well in excess of $30 billion. But online dating wasn't always so mainstream. Part of that was, of course, cultural expectations around online dating, but I'd argue there was an equally large technology issue. In the early days of the web, there were actually lots of dating websites, but they weren't particularly good. Remember, the technologies to run a high-quality online dating website, a place where people could post photos, exchange messages, you know, those kinds of things, weren't actually very common or easy to come by. By 1996, there was over 100 little websites that were doing online dating. Most of them had a few hundred people, maybe a thousand people on them. And for the most part, most of them were simply just a, a list of personal ads with an email address publicly shown. It said, if you want to contact me, here's my email address. What obviously we had to do right away is educate all these people that FriendFinder was here. And on FriendFinder, you anonymize who you were by using usernames. The reason why there are so many simple dating websites at the time was that it didn't take that much coding skills in order to put a list of people along with their email address. A full social uh, networking site, you had to have a database, you had to have a way to relay messages between uh, different members on a website and do this anonymously. And that took a lot more development time than these people could afford. And since I was doing development for a couple of years and I had software to speed it along, I was able to do almost all the development of them myself. As you heard Andrew mention, even in the early days of the web, he was already skilled and experienced building what he described as social networking websites. I'd use the phrase interactive websites. It's actually that skill, combined with an early entrepreneurial background, that led him down the road toward building FriendFinder. So let's kick things off by learning a bit more about how that skill developed. My first computer was probably 11 in 1981 or so. My mom gave me a VIC-20 Commodore computer, uh, you know, had 3K of memory, uh, had no way to save any data. So when you finish your program, you basically turn off the TV and away it goes. That was kind of my first computer. Then it was a Commodore 64, then an early PC, blah, blah. My first kind of uh, experience with the internet was probably 92 at Stanford at the Center for Design Research. One of the other students there, actually a student faculty member, set up a first web server and we put our small department online and I was totally hooked. You know, you basically create a little text file, save it, and immediately the you know, whole internet could get it as long as you can dial up on a modem or something. But that was kind of the earliest phase, you know, probably 1992. So you were experimenting with computer networks kind of pre-web, right? Before the World Wide Web, you know, there was dial-up connections and uh, bulletin boards and that. In undergrad, probably around uh, 1988 or so, uh, a friend of mine had a modem and he dialed up to something and downloaded a file. And that was mind-blowing to me, just that. From uh, your desktop, on your desk, you can spin a hard drive in another part of the world and get data from it. I was a mechanical engineer undergrad, so I never really understood the, you know, the networking side of things yet. And so this was all black magic voodoo to me. The internet stuff, I guess, you know, it was mostly uh, starting in the bulletin board times. 
And so it really wasn't internet, but the idea of centralizing around a particular location where people anywhere around the world can post and read other comments was probably the precursor to the internet. So when the internet kind of came out, I already had the working vocabulary of what it would be like to uh, post something and everybody else can see it. Um, it was just another way to do it and obviously a much more simpler way to do it with a browser. And according to what I've read, you have a PhD in mechanical engineering. Is that correct? So how did that lead you to starting your own businesses? How did you become, for lack of a better word, entrepreneurial? Well, I grew up in a kind of rural area in, in Indiana with uh, steelworkers as parents. You know, I, my mom and dad both were steelworkers. My mom, electrician at the steel mills. They had this kind of can-do attitude where it's like, whatever we wanted, we can build it. And I think that's kind of where you get the idea of, you know, being an entrepreneur. You don't have to have somebody give you the framework. You just go do it. And so I made small little businesses when I was in high school and such, you know, selling things to neighbors and that type of thing. In undergrad, I bought a uh, house when I was a sophomore and rented it out to other students. So I was always trying to find ways to kind of put my way, way through college. Back then, my parents could s support a little bit, but I wanted to do most I could myself. So I was kind of entrepreneurial there. And when I went to Stanford, you know, you have a lot more free time once you finish your grad student work. You know, a couple of years of doing that, I had most of my work done. When the Internet came out, you know, I was like, well, there's a, an opportunity here. I can kind of make some money on the side. What was your first Internet-based business? I was at a uh, government conference. Local governments in the, in the Bay Area got together and uh, talked about new technologies and the Internet came up. And I made it known to some people there that I built some things on the Internet in 92 or so. And I could do this commercially for somebody. And somebody from the uh, Association of Barrier Government called ABAG was looking to be uh, on the forefront of technology. And they, they took me up on my offer on the spot and gave me a contract for $8,000 to build a website for them. $8,000 in 93 is around, I don't know, 20000 25000 today. And as a grad student, you're like, holy crap, I, you know, I could do this in a week or two and uh, this make a business out of it. I knew how to kind of do a little bit of a startup. You know, back then there wasn't a roadmap on how to do a tech startup. It was just more like, I knew I needed an office. I know I needed to get some type of internet connectivity. I, I mooched off of Stanford for a little bit on my kitchen table at campus, but then quickly got a small office in downtown Palo Alto, had a friend who had a T1 line, which was just mind blowing. And we were just kind of so stoked that this was what Bill Gates had at his house. You know, it's like, wow, Bill Gates could have it and I could have it in my office. And a T1 is 1.5 megabit. Your phone has, you know, an order of magnitude more of that, and we think nothing of it. But this was for our company, you know, hosting stuff. I could do a little graphic design, you know, uh, Photoshop type stuff. So I was able to do most of the work for ABAC. Uh, but then I started hiring uh, other grad students who were looking for part-time gigs. And I had probably a dozen or so developers. This is uh, 93 or so. I didn't get my PhD done until 97. So you could tell I was not well-liked by my uh, professor. I, I more or less disappeared for a couple years working at night on my PhD while during the day I was running this company. <laughs> that's, that's great. That kind of reminds me of my own journey. I, I was not the best graduate student because I was basically too busy running my own companies, kind of like you. Uh, I like to say my school eventually kicked me out with a PhD. Uh, but, but anyway, it sounds like you started off basically doing a consulting company, right? Wh which, of course, is how lots of tech entrepreneurs get their starts, uh, myself included. People mostly just wanted static pages, so that, you know, that was a piece of cake. But you know, I wasn't interested in static stuff. I wanted to do something more interactive and two-way. And that would have been very unique at the time, right? Because the early web was pretty much all static sites. 
Well, one of the things that you could kind of imagine in 1993, when you start talking about the internet, almost nobody had a clue what that meant, especially when you said World Wide Web. You, you know, might have heard it on the news somewhere that, but they had no idea what the capabilities were. Uh, and so what I had to do in order to get contracts is to show proof of concepts of what you can do with this technology beyond simply just putting brochureware up. I created a, a couple kind of uh, mock demo sites, uh, a restaurant review site, a real estate website, and an online dating site called Web Personals. Okay, so you actually launched your first dating website as more of an experiment uh, or series of experiments, really. It's kind of a proof of concept rather than a business. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, uh, interactive websites are different than just static websites. And the key difference is that you can upload data from the user to the centralized website and aggregate it and then make use of that data to provide more value to the collective of people than each one individually. The real estate guy was kind of a, a trivial one because that was simply uh, a directory you can search for. Basically everything that was in a real estate magazine, I photocopied and put into the thing. So it was a total gimmick site. Uh, but the restaurant review site was probably the first one that I created simply because everybody was interested in finding restaurants to go to. And being a grad student who was busy as sin and never got out of campus, it was a thrill to me to kind of see what was out there beyond the Stanford farm, as you will. So that was the site where uh, I basically made it so that people can do almost everything you can do on Yelp but in 1993-94. There's a directory of uh, restaurants that I got from some sort of uh, mailing list, and you can search uh, by location, you can browse by city and such, you can upload reviews of restaurants, and then you can figure out which are the best restaurants in certain areas. It had collaborative filtering, so you can say, you know, if you like this restaurant, you might not like other restaurants because of the overlap between you and other people on the website. And it also had uh, interactive maps. So this was using uh, US uh, GIS data. A friend and I uh, worked together to create a bunch of, uh, I think they were GIFs, basically tiling of a, of a map that you can zoom in and zoom out. And we put little pins where all the restaurants were at. You know, Google Maps, a uh, precursor to it. That was a lot of fun. But that was kind of the first proof of concept. And I realized the value of data. The more data you get, the more cool things you can do with it. Wow. So you basically built a version of Yelp before Yelp existed, like a decade or more before Yelp. Out of curiosity, why do you suppose that didn't end up going anywhere? Um, I was kind of looking back at how many restaurant reviews we had. We probably had a quarter million restaurant reviews because eventually I started replicating it across the country. And frankly, there wasn't any monetization component to it because there wasn't really an ad network that you can sell ads on the thing. Uh, it was more of a labor of love. The restaurant guy wasn't really set up to be a business thing. It was simply more a proof of concept that just kind of sucked more and more of my time on it. And almost with all my early ventures, I didn't do the VC route, except for one of them, which burned me for life for VC. So I don't necessarily recommend people run to the VC right away for it. And one of the problems with Bootstrap is you have to do everything and you have to do it in this case without a revenue stream. And so unfortunately, you know, the restaurant guide didn't take off. But can I assume that the dating website had more success? Uh, that was a company called Web Personals, right? Which you actually end up selling, according to my research, at least. Can you talk about how that got started and what happened with it? Um, I'd recently become you know, broken up with a girlfriend of a long time, and I was getting into the dating scene in the Bay Area. And it was uh, basically uh, archaic. I don't know if people would recall, but back in the day, pre-internet, People would post two or three lined cryptic messages in a classified ad in the newspaper. And these were, you know, a terrible way to describe yourself, but that was all you had. And then you had to dial a phone number and uh, leave a message to an ID. And if that 
person wanted to call you back, they would call back and I, it was just a nightmare. So I, I said, well, shucks, I can just recreate the same restaurant guide, but instead of restaurants, I could put people in basically you're marketing yourself. And this was the first online dating site on the internet. It was about maybe four or five months before uh, Gary Kremen and Match launched. But I think if it wasn't like one person invented it before the other person, it was basically the idea of, well, eventually we're going to have classified ads online is a no brainer. It was simply just who implemented it first. And by implementing uh, web personals first, I was able to put it in bulletin boards and promote it that way. And being the first site, you got some press and some other things on that, but it was totally bootstrapped. It was a hobby that I did at night. And then between 9 PM and midnight or so, I'd work on my thesis projects. You know, you got to put things in order. <laughs> yes, I, I fully agree. In fact, I always tell my most entrepreneurial students that they have to learn to prioritize. And sometimes I understand that their schoolwork for my class is actually less of a priority for them than their startups. And yeah, that's okay. That's a choice they have to make. And yeah, it has consequences, but but it's important to, again, do this kind of prioritization. Uh, and so you clearly made your choice and, and seems like it worked out. What ended up happening with that dating website? The site had about 200,000 members when I sold it to a, a company, which eventually became uh, Telepersonals, or at least became the website for Telepersonals. It conveniently had a similar name with Web Personals. And as far as marketing on that, well, it was done through bulletin boards, word of mouth, uh, some press. There wasn't a commercial aspect to it. It was all free, no ads, no subscription at that point. Once again, it was simply done to prove the software that I was working on had merit. Because one of the things we did, instead of writing a uh, custom code for each website we created, we basically created a uh, framework for creating websites in which you have software that runs all the interactive parts of the website, but uh, you'd create a series of templates. The software would read in the template to display to the users and interact between the database and the website. And so this was a way that we can use the different website creations that we made as proof of concepts for the underlying software that we then would sell as a package, basically a line item to the consulting work that we did. HP would come to us and wanted to interact a website. They would say, hey, we already got a static website with a bunch of web pages on it, but we want to have a login. We want to have access control and things like that. So what we do is we'd sell them our software package called the personalized website. And then that'd be a line item like 3,000 or 5,000 or something on top. It was basically pretty money for something you'd already have. All the extra customization and design work would be on a per hour basis. And so that's how you'd kind of build out a project. Using the websites as a test bed to create better software that you can kind of build over time. And eventually that software became something we tried to sell for a couple of years as a standalone. And we got into the software business because we found that that was much more profitable if done at scale than uh, trying to do a consulting gig. So it sounds like that dating website wasn't really your main thing. Uh, was it just a side project or experiment that you eventually sold? Uh, that wasn't FriendFinder, right? Well, the thing about uh, FriendFinder, which I, I think I launched in May 1996, I had already been doing uh, social media type websites for two or three years by that time. The, the restaurant guide and the web personal sites were more or less social networking sites where you, you basically aggregate data from people and then give more value to them. When I sold Web Personals, I think I got $100,000 and a one-year non-compete. Uh, and when you're a grad student, you know, this is sold in 1995. So 100 grand is, you know, $250,000. It, it was like, I call them base hits. And entrepreneurs need to get these base hits under their belt. They make enough money that they can kind of think more strategically later. And that was the reason why was, the sale was good. Because after that non-compete was over, I knew that when I create the next one, I can do better. Because, you know, I've learned a lot in those two years. 
So the day after the non-compete ended, I started working. Now, I, if I was thinking better, I could have said, well, I should have launched a year after the, uh, the non-compete. But, you know, I'm still working on my other companies. It was kind of the back burner. And, you know, a friend of mine said, what's stopping you from uh, creating another dating site? The internet was early. It took a, a couple months of coding up, and, uh, and then we launched in May 1996. So you launched FriendFinder. Uh, you're basically doing things over again, and, and now you know more about building a dating website. So what did you do right the second time? How, how did it grow so successfully, especially versus the other hundred or so dating websites that were already out there, which you know is kind of what you mentioned earlier? Yeah, well, the easiest way I think I alluded to that most of these very simple dating sites were just a list of dating ads plus their email address. Now, anyone who knows how to write a scraper, basically a software to go suck down every web page of a site and extract out their email address, would kind of see the, uh, the gaping marketing hole here that they created for us. So we were able to go to all these little tiny websites and send each of their members there, basically a spam email. Back in 1996, there wasn't really the concept of spam because people really didn't get that many email to begin with so that when they did get an email, for the most part, it was legitimate email. And what we did is we emailed everyone who put their email address publicly to say, hey, FriendFinder's here. And one of the cool features is that your email won't be displayed to everybody. And we had phenomenal response rate. We had over 30% of the people that we emailed went and registered and became a member of FriendFinder. Now, anybody who does email marketing today is normally you get like less than a 1% return rate on it. So getting 30% was phenomenal. And simply just because it was a game changer for what they had experienced before. And once you start getting critical mass, size begets size. And, you know, dating is kind of one of those winner-take-all categories where just like eBay, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, is that the economies of scale, when you get it big, you get more benefit the bigger it gets. And so we did the other types of marketing. We posted in every bulletin board we can get to, word of mouth, some uh, pickup in media, but very little because we didn't have money to hire a... Uh, marketing staff. That's kind of the advantage of doing some VC is that you can loss lead. You can start spending money now to make money in the future, but you can't really do that when you bootstrap. So we were kind of on the hip. So it was just kind of word of mouth and hustling and, and maybe some luck. I guess what really ended up moving the needle or was it kind of a combination of things? One of the things that was a game changer for us in terms of getting traffic was getting cool shades on Yahoo. Now, Yahoo was started by David Yang and David Philo at Stanford. Uh, they were uh, Stanford GSB guys. And people today might not understand what the advantage of getting cool shades on Yahoo meant, but it was huge. There were hundreds of these little websites that were doing dating that were listed in a directory on Yahoo. And we have hundreds of them on a list. People would just go to the top and go down. So if you were on the top of the list, you were not clicked on. But what Yahoo did was they created cool shades. And what they did is they selected among hundreds of different websites what they thought were cool. And when it came to online personals, there were only two sites that got cool shades, Match.com and FriendFinder. Being one of two out of hundreds of sites that had cool shades meant you get a huge amount of traffic. About a third of our signups came from those cool shade links that we got on Yahoo. I just want to take a moment to highlight this cool shades being featured on Yahoo thing. Specifically, in any entrepreneurial success story, I like to make sure people listening understand that there's no magic. There can certainly be luck, but no magic. Based on Andrew's story, it sounds like being featured by Yahoo was a huge driver of initial awareness for FriendFinder. And if that hadn't happened, well, FriendFinder might not have become what it became. 
Anyway, I point this out because if you're the type of entrepreneur who thinks if you just build something awesome, people will magically find it, well, that doesn't really happen. Your customers have to find out about you somehow, which means a marketing strategy, something lots of entrepreneurs overlook, is as important, if not more important, than a product strategy, which is what most entrepreneurs tend to focus on. But if anything, product strategy comes after a marketing strategy. In other words, once you get users and or customers, then it's time to respond to what they're actually showing you they really want. And this, by the way, is exactly what Andrew did with FriendFinder. It's actually how adult FriendFinder, which was the more popular version, came to be. It was more than just an online dating site because we had multiple categories. We had obviously the simple ones of men seeking women, women seeking men, men seeking men, and women seeking women. But we also had activity partners and pen pals because we realized the internet was going to facilitate relationships of all types. Fundamental to that is friends. And so when I started FriendFinder, I picked the name FriendFinder because I wanted it to be about relationships. I thought fundamental all types of relationships is being friends with somebody first. So that's how we call it a FriendFinder and not something like Match.com because we want to be more than that. With FriendFinder, we had all those same categories that we had on web personals, and we were going mostly for the mainstream market. What we found, though, is when we did content review, Every time someone would upload a photo or post a profile, we went and skim it to make sure that it didn't have questionable uh, content or was an ad or, or whatnot. But what we found very quickly is that a small percentage, maybe about 10% of our members, wanted more than just friendship when it came to online dating. They were looking more for sex. How it manifests is when you do a photo review, you have to approve it or not. Well, obviously, people started uploading nude photos of themselves. And... You know, even though I have a Christian background and I had this thing where it's like, well, you know, we probably don't want to have nudity on the website because you would kind of drive away the core audience. So we kept deleting these nude photos and the profiles associated to them. But after a few weeks of doing that, I'm not necessarily a prude or anything. I said, well, how about I'll create a, a duplicate website, use the same software and just redirect people who upload nude photos to it. And I'll call that adult friend finder. In fact, it was simply a subdomain adult.friendfinder.com. And it took me about two weeks or so to copy the software, update the templates, because it's basically a templating system. So they can share the templates, except for the URL or the name of the website was different, maybe some graphics. So it was a fairly easy thing to do to, to replicate the software and reuse it. We launched Adult Friend Finder, and Adult Friend Finder took about three or four months before it had more members on it than Friend Finder. It was the first online dating site that allowed nudity. And I never really call it pornography. I just call it adult content. It was basically dating ads where we don't have a restriction that you can't upload nudity on your profile. And so uh, to get to the elephant in the room, I guess, what was that like? What was the experience of having this much more popular dating website than FriendFinder that was classified as adult and maybe even pornographic in nature? Actually, profiles that have uh, nude content or adult content on it were, on some regards, more honest and straightforward than the ones for mainstream audiences. Because mainstream audiences, you know how many times people say, oh, one of my favorite things to do is walk on the beach hand in hand with my date. You know, Tinder and hookup culture is kind of identified. There are other people who want to be more direct and honest about what they want. And, and for some people, they weren't looking for long-term relationships. They were looking for hookups. Other people were looking for kind of more the esoteric things like uh, the swingers wanted a threesome or couples hooking up. You know, all that type of sexual behavior needed an outlet on the, on the internet, and I was not too shy to do it. I imagine you must have encountered some unique challenges running an adult-themed website. Are there any ones you'd mind sharing with us? 
Well, obviously, the, the first one is staffing. It was hard to get staff to join us until the dot-com bomb happened in 2000. And so many people were unemployed who had internet experience and we were able to like professionalize our staff almost overnight. It was a blessing for us because we didn't get money through advertising, which collapsed, but we got money through subscription. And so we were able to come out ahead of that. But there's really not that much difference between a mainstream dating site like FriendFinder, or let's say Match at this point, um, and a site like Adult FriendFinder, other than they have nudity in their profiles. We have to be careful about things such as uh, fake profiles. Match.com has the same problem as well. In fact, they just got sued a couple of years ago for uh, promoting fake profiles as real. This is a problem that goes across the entire dating world because it's so difficult to determine if someone's registering, if they're real or they're spam or they're uh, fraud people. You really can't tell until they start behaving in ways that you can identify them. It has nothing really to do with the adult content on it. But when you start having adult content, you do have to be a little more concerned about people underage, for example. Whereas if somebody's 17 using Match.com, you could say that there's less risk than someone 17 on a dating site that has nudity. But for the most part, the risks, I think, are the same. We have to be careful about looking out for prostitution, which could happen on any site as well. But we review all content and respond to member complaints when somebody goes off our terms of service. But I never really thought that adult dating was that much different than mainstream. There was a gray area. Do we need to get a driver's license and proof of age of everybody who uploads photos of themselves if they contain nudity? You know, it's one of the things, there hasn't been a lawsuit yet to kind of prove that you don't need to do this. But almost for the last 25 years, we allowed people to do it on a First Amendment basis. You know, it's their right to upload nude content without having their uh, privacy curtailed by giving their driver's license and proof of who they are. I heard you reference monetization strategies in that answer and your business model. Could you tell us more about that too? How did you first start monetizing FriendFinder? Yeah, when we first started, it was completely free because obviously you're trying to build up critical mass and you want to get as many people. So it was, it was probably free for the first six months. We had a couple hundred thousand people by that time. We wanted to find a way to monetize it without putting a paywall up because this is late 1996 and people were not too familiar with putting credit cards on the line anyway. And so we created a program in which we would highlight your profile for I think around $10 a month. And we made this completely optional. Your profile would show up first on the search results, but you can still use this site completely free for everything else in terms of contacting people. So that was a way to kind of introduce a paywall to people to get value to do that. And we put the order form up. We didn't have any expectation that we're gonna make money or not. We just put it up to see what happened. And we put a little bell that would ring on our computer every time an email would come in with an order. And we went back to work. Five minutes later, the bell went off and we all were like, oh my God, we got an order. And we said, well, if we got an order every five minutes, I think it was like 2000, we'd make it a day. But it took another day before we got the second order. But we showed that it worked. We showed that people would actually type in their credit card online. And that was huge back then because you didn't have SSL. You didn't have encryption peer-to-peer. There's still a fear of typing or giving your credit card to an anonymous thing on the internet. Eventually, over time, customs change, and now people don't think twice about doing it. So you monetized based on subscriptions. You already told us you didn't take VC and you bootstrapped the business. Can you give us a sense of just how big this company got? Yes, we didn't take any VC to start FriendFinder. When FriendFinder started, we only needed technology, things that I could do and my, my partner could do. We can build websites. And once you build a website, the marketing was free at that point. It was possible to get traffic without spending money. 
One of the reasons why people get VC is that they can spend to build a critical mass by advertising their product. And once they get a critical mass, then they can start monetizing it. It's kind of a pump priming thing. When it comes to online dating, especially back then, since it didn't cost much to get a critical mass of users because you're one of the first sites out there, uh, you could do this without spending money up front. Once you got the critical mass, then we started getting a little bit of revenue by putting the order form up. And a certain percentage of people were doing it enough that we could start paying for our staff to do the customer service on it, which also wasn't very expensive to do because we we're paying people $10, $12 an hour. You didn't really need that much. So we were in a sweet spot that a product was fairly cheap. You didn't have a marginal cost. Every new person who came in, it didn't cost you much to service that new client. So we were able to get in and get to a critical mass before we had to start spending money. And we started spending real money in our affiliate program where at some point we were spending probably 50% of our revenue would go back to our affiliate program. In fact, for the most part, our affiliate program typically pays out about 50% of what we make. $10 came in, we give $5 to our affiliates. In fact, most of the affiliates have switched over the years from a per click to a percentage basis. So when you're on a percentage basis, you kind of can factor in that you're going to make profit on every ad buy that you make or every affiliate who sends traffic, you're going to make money on it. And that enabled us to keep growing. As far as size, you know, probably within the first two years, we were about a million or two a year of revenue. So this is probably by 1998. And then, um, especially after the dot-com crash happened and we were able to hire more staff, including a lot of marketing people, um, people who did traditional ad buys and such, and we were able to then become much more mainstream in our technique of how to get traffic. It was just growing month after month. In fact, we had a, a program that we gave 1% of people's salary bonus every time we had a month over month record revenue, and we gave that out 49 months in a row. This is probably between 2001 and 2005, and that was mostly because we were riding the wave of the internet. But we were also, at this point, by far the 800-pound uh, gorilla in the market because we were big enough that we could afford to outbuy ads from any competitor. One of the things I would do, I would pay up to 200% of what we'd make on any ad buy that our competitor was on. And this is, I guess, what you do when you want to be a monopoly, when you want to be the winner. And that was what I think fueled the growth until I sold the company in 2007, because I didn't necessarily care about how much we spent. Of course, we're making a lot of money. When I sold the company, we had EBITDA around 90 million, and I owned, at that point, 92% of the company. 8% went to a buddy of mine when we merged his CAM company with our dating company. You know, CAMs and adult dating go together like chocolate and peanut butter. You have one where people are doing paid performers for CAMs, another one they want to find dates, and we now have it on our dating site that we have a CAM business integrated with that, so our members can use CAMs and, and vice versa. So when I sold it, we were, you know, uh, phenomenally profitable. Owning 92% of a company pulling in $90 million a year in profits? Whew. I know in the, the tech world, we're usually talking about entrepreneurs who mostly just look rich on paper. It's because they have, what, 10 or 15% stake in a VC-backed Silicon Valley unicorn. But that company is really operating at a loss. But wow, 92% ownership of a company churning out $90 million in profits? That's well, that's something. Uh, so what happened? Why would somebody making $90 million a year in profits sell his company instead of just keep running it? Um, basically, the, the short answer to this is after running a company for 12 years and doing 70, 80 hours a week for all the time, no vacations and that, 
And uh, one of the problems I, I do as well is I tend to be uh, overachiever types, but more like the workaholics, where you know you just plow through anything. Oh, we need some help pages written. Okay, I'll write that. You need marketing text, I'll do it. You know, I always felt that no one else is going to be able to do it. I have to do it, and this is also because it's hard to find staff that were world leaders in their field, mostly because of the content. So I got burnt out. And when you get burnt out, and this is before I realized I was clinically depressed and I wasn't getting any joy out of working and I didn't know what to do at this point. And so I just got burnt out and decided to sell. Who'd you sell it to and for how much? Because in this case, that's a really important part of the story, right? I sold it in December 7th, 2007, which will always be a day of infamy for me because that was a day I basically gave up and said, I'm done, somebody else can run this thing. Earlier that year, I've been trying to sell the company, but one of the hard things is, when you run a site that has adult content on there, the number of buyers go to almost zero. Because for some strange reason, the markets think that if you have adult content on it, you're somehow less legitimate of a company than if you don't. It's just the reality of the situation and one of the challenges we faced. And what it meant though, is that it was really hard to find mainstream hedge funds and buyers to take over the company. I hired uh, someone to go out and try to help sell the company. You know, they take like 1% or so commission rate on it. We only had a couple buyers who were interested in them, and they were giving low ball numbers on it. You know, a couple times EBITDA. I think uh, Facebook went live for like 80 times or it was just crazy amounts. Basically the stock market trades at 16 to 20 EBITDA and we were getting offers at two or three. When I was approached by the people who bought out the name of Penthouse out of bankruptcy, they came and said, well, we can raise money and they're going to give me uh, $500 million for it. And I'm like, well, $500 million is not the multiple that I wanted, but I wanted to get out because I was burned out, tired, and I was just ready to run. One of the problems of making money, especially the money that I made, is that you have all this money, but you're not getting any joy out of it because you're so busy working on it and you can't leave it alone. You can't go off for two weeks on a vacation and just think the company is going to run by itself when you have a basically a bare bones staff. And so I agreed to do the deal, this $500 million number, but this was 2007 and the financial crisis was coming. One of the precursors of the financial crisis was liquidity started drying up, which meant all the private equity guys couldn't raise the money to give a cash buyout of a company. So over the course of a few months, the deal got worse and worse to a point where, and we got about two times EBITDA in cash and the rest were IOUs. Pouring salt on a wound, the headlines was all the penthouse buys adult friend finder and friend finder and such. And it made it appear that penthouse was some big company that was buying us out. They had about 2%, maybe one or 2% of our revenue and we're losing two or $3 million a year on it. And here we had revenue 250 or so million a year and pulling off 90 mil or so. Here we are getting bought out. It is what it is. But you own the company again and even are running it now, according to what I've read at least. So yeah, what happened? What did those other owners do with FriendFinder and what got you back involved? Um, I have to be careful about what I say here because you know I don't want to get slander or libel or this type of thing. But my impression was the new owners didn't care about the company with the same love that I did. Because I never worked to make money for a company. Ever since I was a kid, I knew that the value of an entrepreneur is to give value to other people. And because I was always a single guy, I always knew the value of relationships and love and friendship. I cared more about the product and creating a good service for our members than the actual revenue. I always look at the revenue as a big pile of cash that comes in behind you. If you don't look at the revenue or how much money you're making on it, you can make a better product. And the short of it, I believe that the new owners did not have that to heart. 
and they were uh, private equity guys. They were going to try to go IPO and use the IPO money to pay off the IOUs that they gave me for the remainder of the 500 million. Long story short, they went public, I think, in 2010, and it was the worst IPO of the year. It dropped 95% over the course of one year from the IPO price. I have to be careful about why I believe this is the case, but I believe that the market didn't believe that the management who purchased the company had the shareholders' interests at heart. At least I can say that. But over the next, uh, I think it was like six years, they uh, ended up running the company into the ground and to a point where it couldn't service its debt. And it went bankrupt in 2013. When you have IOUs of the company, when they can't pay it back, you more or less get control of the company back. And I got control of the company back in 2014. However, I got control of the company back equity-wise, but I didn't get control of the first tier debt, which was controlled by a private equity firm that was, you could consider them a vulture private equity firm, where their goal is to go looking for distressed companies or companies that nobody else wants, in this case, because they were adult, and then put terms of their debt that were onerous. In fact, the debt for 2014 until just this year was at 14% interest, you know, 150 million or so of debt. Whew, that is a big interest payment. And so what, you're responsible for that because you own the company again? How does that all work now? Um, the company was paying out about 90 to 95% of its profit in the form of interest on the debt. The debt was structured in a way that the bankers never really want their debt paid off. They want the debt to be there forever and everything to be paid off on interest. And so they basically attach themselves to the revenue stream of the company and basically take it out that way. Things changed earlier this year. Frankly, I finally grew a pair and decided to come back and try to help the company out. And so earlier this year, I bought out the majority of the debt so that I could try to change the terms of the debt. And I think now it's like 7% instead of 14% so that I can help the company grow again. Because one of the problems when you get a large debt is extracting profits that's only paying off interest. You can't reinvest that into the growth of the company. And over the last six or seven years, the company top line and bottom line had shrunk to about a third of what it was uh, when I sold the company. So hopefully uh, my involvement this year as an advisor, as well as a founder of the company, I'm trying to help reboot the company over the next year or so so that we can go back and compete directly with Match.com and others. That's right, Andrew Conru is back working on FriendFinder again. And yeah, the previous owners kind of tanked the business while leaning heavily into the adult dating space. That's definitely hurt the company. But as of this recording, FriendFinder still has around 150 dedicated employees, millions of users, and some decent profits that it can finally access thanks to Andrew buying out a huge chunk of the company's debt. What does that mean exactly for the future of FriendFinder? And more importantly, what does it mean for all of us listening to FriendFinder's story? Well, I'll let Andrew tell you what he thinks. One of the things that Match.com has been doing over the last 10 years or so is basically consolidating and acquiring all the competitors in their space so that they could be homogeny and basically be in a monopoly and have monopoly prices and such. One of the reasons why I'm coming back is I think any company that's been around for 20 years who has a monopoly on ideas that if they were patentable, the patents would have expired. I think it's wrong for society to have these type of monopolies. Uh, there was a site called Plenty of Fish, 
And Plenty of Fish was a thorn and match site because they were basically giving away a huge dating site for free. And their site was great. Quality of their site was on par with Match.com, but it was for free. And they made most of their revenue from our affiliate program with Adult Friend Finder. So if you were on their site and you want anything adult, they would uh, put links to our site and that would be their primary revenue on it. And that was one of the things that when Match bought them out, they bought out the last big competitor that's free. That's scary because they make about $2 billion a year profit now on something that doesn't really take that much effort to write. I think it's a disservice for society to have monopolies taking billions. Well, turns out whether you're a friend finder user or not, if you care at all about online dating, then you should probably care about what happens next with friend finder. At least you should, according to Andrew, because the match group has bought up lots of its competitors and doesn't really have, well, <laughs> a company that can match it in the market. <laughs> all right, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and show myself out. But you know, do keep this in mind. It's potentially bad news for anyone, whether they're looking to find true love online or, you know, just trying to find a good time. I guess we'll all have to stay tuned to see how the rest of the story plays out. In the meantime, I'd like to thank Andrew Conru for sharing the story of Friend Finder up to this point in its history. If you enjoyed listening, I hope you'll take a moment to share this episode with a friend. You can also like, rate, review, and do all those other good things wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it if you would. It might seem worthless to you, but it does help us reach more people. And, you know, it encourages us to keep putting together more episodes like this, which I'm guessing you enjoyed. Otherwise, well, you wouldn't be here, right? And of course, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share about this or any episode, you can reach us on Twitter. We are at WebmastersPod. You can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also write lots of articles about startups and entrepreneurship. You can find them by going to my website. It's AaronDinan.com. I want to take a moment to thank our sound engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping pull together this episode. And I want to thank our sponsor, Latona's, for their support. Don't forget to check out latonas.com, especially if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business. If you're interested in getting more webmasters, you can do that by subscribing on your podcast app of choice. It means you're going to get the next episode as soon as it's released. That's coming soon. Until then, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. 